This podcast series is brought to you by Net Zero, a food upcycler providing technology to feed the world better food with less resources. Doing their part to reduce, recover, and reharvest food waste. You can find out more at netzro.us. And by the Upcycled Food Association, building a food system in which all food reaches its highest and best use. To learn more about becoming a member or to support the UFA by making a charitable donation, visit upcycledfood.org. Part of being a part of a local food system is making sure every part of the system is healthy and supported. And that's, as consumers, that's one of the most important things we can do right now. Too good to waste. Too good to waste. Way too good to waste. Too good to waste. Absolutely. Hi, and welcome to the podcast series, Too Good to Waste. I'm your host, Kevin May, and together we're going on an adventure to explore some of the fun and creative and innovative ways that lots of people are doing their part to help find a higher value in unused food and food byproducts that might otherwise be wasted. So thanks for joining me. Let's go see if we can find out about some of these things that are too good to waste. Happy Earth Day, everybody. Anybody recognize what kind of a bird that was? I'll tell you, it happened to be this most incredible cardinal that landed in a tree right above us as we were in our backyard just the other day. And the reason I wanted to share that with you is that it's just kind of one of the many little gifts and amazing experiences we all can see or have or hear when we're out in nature and just enjoying this incredible planet. So in celebration of Earth Day, that's my little contribution to get this particular episode kicked off. And I'm also excited because one of the things we're going to be talking about today is our connection to food. And not just, okay, great, here it is, we're going to eat it, but really understanding where it comes from. So before we get into it, I want to read you something, and this will sort of set the scene for our interview today. You're a cook who understands that the story behind your food is an essential ingredient of good eating. You want to know how and where your food was grown and who was involved in production. You have a vision of what the good life is, and it has a lot to do with good food. Well, if this describes you, then welcome to the Good Life Kitchen, where you'll learn the joy of linking the pleasures of food and cooking with a commitment to community and the environment. You will also gain an appreciation for the landscape and the soil from which your food comes, as well as for the people who work to raise that food. Along the way, you'll save money and minimize the impact on the environment. And ultimately, through nutritious food prepared with joy, we will all feel better about our own health and about contributing to a more sustainable way of living on this planet. I just had to share that with you because I felt that that was such a wonderful introduction to who our guest is today on this show, and that is from her cookbook called Cooking Up the Good Life, Creative Recipes for the Family Table. Today, my guest is Jenny Breen. Jenny is a culinary nutritionist and a chef with over 20 years in the food industry, and she is also an education and public health professional. She uses the kitchen as a place for transformation and works at the intersection of food, health, sustainable agriculture, and justice. 
She believes that food and cooking have the power to transform personal, community, and environmental health. Jenny, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to this Earth Day special episode of Too Good to Waste. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So we're celebrating Earth Day today, and as part of that reflection on our connection to the Earth through just about everything we do, I was particularly excited about having you on the show today because I wanted to explore with you a little bit of the connection between the food that we eat and our environment. Sure. So originally, I would say, um, and really even now, all food that we consume starts in nature. Um, Even food that ultimately ends up as really highly processed food once was a plant uh, or an animal. Although I I like to think of animals as extensions of the the plant world because if we're raising them correctly, they're eating plants. Um, So food and nature are one and the same. And I actually think that um, if we follow uh, the way Mother Nature has designed our food and our bodies, then, um, then we will be healthy. And in being healthy, you know, in, as humans, we are also supporting a healthy earth and a healthy environment and vice versa. The two are inextricably linked. And so... Nature knows what to do, and our bodies uh, know what to do. And if we continue to allow them to be as they were meant to be, then I think that both will be as healthy as possible. Yeah, I love that. And I I completely agree with you. I, I think one of the things that I'm taking away from this is just not to try to overthink it, but if anything, just have a sense of gratitude for the food that we're eating. And that brings to mind something I heard you talking about. I think it was on another podcast. And it was this practice of sitting down and eating your food and just thinking about where your food came from during mealtime. So is that something that can help us feel a real connection to the food that we're eating and where it came from? Uh, Yeah, I think so. And and something that's even more kind of mind-blowing to me is that not only is that something that uh, will help us just reconnect and and re-understand our connection to the earth, um, but it actually physiologically changes the way your body absorbs nutrients. So when we take deep breaths, we are stimulating our parasympathetic nervous system, and that is the counterpart to our fight or flight mode or our sympathetic nervous system. And so what that does is it tells our body hey, it's time to rest and consume food and and absorb nutrients. And so our body actually on a physiological level changes when we stop and take breaths and pay attention to what we're eating. So I find that to be just incredible and and this sort of really (laughs) amazing example of how nature has mapped this all out for us. And so in, in appreciating and reminding ourselves to be thankful from about where our food came from, we are also allowing our body to receive the maximum nutrients from our food. So it's probably not a good idea to have my cell phone at the dinner table and text messages going off or having the news on while we're eating dinner? Definitely not. Um, and uh, yeah, and especially in, in 
you know, the times that we have just been going through around um, the coronavirus, the level of stress is pretty high. And, and so, but even without that, just the distraction and uh, the way in which we are not focused on ourselves and our meal, but are focused on so much external stimulation or um, stress-inducing information, uh, it's really not good for us on any level, physically or emotionally. Yeah, that is such a great reminder. And especially right now where, as you say, we're just dealing with this coronavirus issue and that is causing so much stress and disrupting people's lives so significantly. Yet I can't help but wonder if this might be a situation where there may be a little bit of an interesting silver lining to it in the sense that since we've all been sheltering in place throughout the country for quite a while now, might this be the opportunity for us to refocus our attention on the food that we're buying and the food that we already have in our refrigerator or maybe even in our pantries? You know, what do you see as some things we could do right now to kind of take advantage of this crisis as a way to sort of shift our perspective or shift our habits a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That has been um, a really interesting uh, outcome of this situation is that people are, you know, really not by choice being forced to feed themselves and their families at home um, and certainly take out food and and pick up food is available and I think it's really important that we support our local small food businesses as well um, but without doubt um, a lot of people are cooking more than they ever have before and I see that as a really great opportunity to kind of remember that we have these skills and we have these tools and resources uh, at home within ourselves. We don't have to get complicated. We don't have to get fancy. In fact, we can keep it really simple. Um, and that by cooking at home, we really have so much more control over the quality of the food that we're eating. And um, we also have this opportunity to really bring back the, the dinner table or the breakfast table and to really, again, sit down and be mindful and engage with our food and give ourselves the time to absorb the nutrients. And um, I know in my own home, I have two teenagers and my husband is a teacher, so we have all been at home. Um, and that certainly has its challenges. But one of the things that's happening in our house is that we are having dinner together more than we have had in years because we none of us has a somewhere to run off to. Um, and, and there's been a really beautiful side, you know, just a, a consequence, a positive consequence of that in that we are engaging with each other and spending time together and not just scarfing down our food and leaving. Um, and so I think that there are all kinds of benefits. Uh, the other piece I'll just say is that there has never, I don't think, been a better example of why a healthy local food system is so critical. We are in a situation where supply chains are really disrupted and we may or may not be able to get ingredients, foods from far away for all kinds of reasons. And so knowing that we have local producers and local systems in place to get food from literally from the farm to our tables is is really critical and we're 
I would say really lucky to be living in Minnesota where we have an incredibly strong network and lots and lots of people who are working really hard to make sure that our food is safe, but also that our local producers are still being supported. So I think that's just a really, really important lesson from this. Absolutely. And coming from Florida to Minnesota, I actually have grown to really appreciate the incredible local food scene and the farmers, the growers and the farmers markets that are available to us here. And one thing that I particularly noticed, however, was that in Florida, we had fruit and vegetables pretty much year round. You get spoiled with that. Here in Minnesota, it's not a 12 month season for growing outside, obviously. So what are some things that we can do to kind of get through the different seasons when the produce isn't as plentiful here? That's a great question. And there's a couple different answers. I get that question all the time uh, when I teach, you know, well, what am I supposed to do for the eight months out of the year in Minnesota when we don't have fresh produce? Um, and so one thing I'll say, first of all, is that we're getting a lot better at you know, indoor gardening and farming and, and hoop houses and greenhouses that are extending our season, but also that eating locally isn't just limited to produce. So uh, especially in the Midwest, we have incredible local dairies uh, and incredible uh, resources for really high quality local animal if you consume animal products. Also things like grains, corn and wheat, um, other grains, wild rice, so things that are local and are grown year-round and available year-round. We even have some incredible bean growers in this area. So there are beautiful um, heirloom beans of all kinds that we can add to our pantry. So I'll just, I'll just remind people that buying local food is not limited just to vegetables and fruits. Um, and that said, in terms of stocking your pantry, uh, obviously, things that can last on a shelf are really important right now. So I always have an assortment of dried beans and legumes. So lentils and black beans and navy beans and garbanzo beans and black-eyed peas. And I mean, the list goes on. I, I could mention, I can't remember the names of some of these beautiful heirloom beans, but they're, they're beautiful and delicious. Um, dried grains, again. So I keep lots of whole grains on my shelf. Usually I have at least four or five at any given time and that can change, but staples are things like brown rice, quinoa, millet, um, wild rice. I do keep pasta on my shelf. I don't do as much pasta as probably my kids would like, but um, you know, again, whole grain pastas are the kinds of pastas I would suggest. Canned items, I definitely keep canned beans as well. Sometimes you just need already cooked beans, but if you have the time, which I think a lot of us do now, to cook a big pot of beans and have that prepared, and then I usually just put them in Ziplocs or small containers in the freezer, so I have the equivalent of a can of beans ready to go. Um, I keep canned tomato products. I usually keep certain things like coconut milk or other really great condiments. I'm, so when I teach, uh, I'm a big believer in the condiments and the fats being the, the source of all our flavor. So I usually teach about making sauces and condiments. And so having things on hand with which to do that are really great. I usually keep multiple kinds of nut butters in my refrigerator. So tahini, almond butter, peanut butter, 
whatever. I also keep a lot of nuts on my shelf and you can make your own nut butters if you have any kind of a food processor or a blender. Um, what else? Dried fruits and vegetables can also be really great. So um, dried tomatoes, dried mushrooms, even dried greens or peas, um, dried berries and apples and things like that can add all kinds of elements to your cooking. Uh, obviously, a really great thing to keep in mind is during the summer and when these things are more abundant, fresh, I will do a lot of preserving. So drying, pickling, and freezing so that in the winter, um, like now, and even into the spring, like now, I have a lot of stuff on hand that's ready to go. So um, building your pantry is sort of an ongoing and year-round process, and it does involve some foresight and some planning, but uh, I think it's one of the best things we can do to be prepared, whether we're stuck inside or not. Yeah, and clearly right now, many of us are, at least at the time that we're doing this podcast. And uh, what a great list, and thank you for some excellent ideas on what to do when we have an abundance of produce, and then what to do in the off-season, so to speak, where we don't have access to the fresh fruits and vegetables. One thing that was really interesting the other day that I've seen, and you've probably experienced it too, is this, I've walked into a co-op in a grocery store and all of a sudden I literally walked in there and the shelves were empty. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? It was a reality check. It, it hit me and I thought, oh man, a little bit of panic initially set over. And then I thought, okay, okay this is going to be okay. There's other food we have. But what do you think is going on with this hoarding mentality? And, you know, in keeping with the theme of the podcast series, Too Good to Waste, are we running into a situation where we've overbought and stuff is going bad in our refrigerators before we can possibly eat it all? Um, I'm just trying to figure out what is a good balance? What's a lesson we can learn from what we're going through right now as a good way to kind of manage what we have in a well-stocked pantry, for instance, and the right amount of fresh fruits and vegetables to supplement that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, it's funny that you mentioned the hoarding. So, you know, when all of this first started happening, my daughter was like, mom, we need to go get food. We need to go get groceries. And I was like, man, we have enough food in our freezer and in our cabinets for, for I mean, we'll be fine. I obviously enjoy salads and, and vegetables too. And so, um, like you said, I like to sort of complement the preserved and the pantry food with the fresh food. And that's always a, a balance. I think a lot of people probably did at least, and maybe still are wasting a lot of fresh food because they did that and aren't quite ready to, to do maybe what they didn't realize they had to do in order to use it all. I teach a class and I have my students, um, take a look at their own food waste and just look at and, and, and sort of talk about what what gets wasted and why and most of them say that's what they do is they buy a lot of vegetables with the intention of eating them and then they just don't and we all have different reasons for that right like before it was because they were going out more um, but also because we don't have a plan and for a lot of people if you don't have a plan you're just not gonna get to it and so um, I really encourage people to just sort of have a plan, whether that is I'm going to include broccoli every day and whatever I make, or whether it's really detailed and, you know, this is the menu tonight and this is the menu tomorrow. I also 
um, you know, pick a few vegetables and focus on those rather than trying to do everything every week all the time. I know that there are some vegetables I always buy because I know everyone in the house is going to eat them no matter what I do with them. And some that are going to sit unless I'm very intentional about doing something because nobody else really thinks about or likes to use them. Um, so being intentional, uh, if you cook that big pot of beans, then think, okay, I'm going to make black bean soup one day, I'm going to make enchiladas one day, and I'm going to have a bean salad one day. And then what are the things that go with that? So also be strategic so you're not having to start from zero every single day. Uh, I think that's something that intimidates people about cooking is they feel like it's a lot of work every day. And if we can remember that if we're smart and intentional, we can keep it pretty simple. I mean, I rarely spend more than about a half an hour making food for my family. Um, and that's because I know what I have. I know what's already cooked. I have some sort of a plan. Um, and, and then I can execute it. So I think, and I do think that we have to also um, just be really conscious of our consumption and that we probably don't need as much as we think. You know, one of the, one of the ironic outcomes of this whole um, sheltering in place is that people who work in the food industry are essential workers and we've now more than ever come to really understand what that means. Uh, it doesn't mean that everyone is in a stable situation right now who works in the industry, but it at least means that we've acknowledged that. And what it also means is that our grocery stores and our farmers markets are considered essential and they're not going to close. And so we don't have to freak out. In fact, what we need to do is really, really support our local producers by shopping and buying products that they are bringing to the markets. So for me, that indicates a long-term commitment rather than just buying everything up and then feeling like we're, we're protecting ourselves. You know, part of being a part of a local food system is making sure every part of the system is healthy and supported. And that's, as consumers, that's one of the most important things we can do right now. Absolutely. And one of the things I've been noticing is, you know, there are definitely some local bakers, for instance, that are baking bread and we're trying to support them. And I saw in the news just the other day that the some of the breweries are starting to get back into production. So the local craft breweries, which will help the grain start flowing. So look around, see what we can so look around and see what you can find. And that all helps to really kind of support the local economy as we come out of this COVID-19 crisis and just in general. These are things we should be doing all the time, as you mentioned. So I want to go back to something you talked about at the beginning of our conversation and explore this a little bit more. Because, yes, people are forced as a result of the sheltering in place to do more cooking at home. But I also feel like there may be a little bit of an intimidation factor. Maybe it's easy just to do spaghetti every night or something because you just don't really know what to do. And as an educator, I know you teach classes about all of this, but what are some of the barriers or challenges or objections that people come up with to why they don't cook more or that they want to, but it's not that easy? Uh, yes, there is intimidation. Uh, 100%. And it doesn't matter if you are a college student or a doctor 
or uh, you know a CEO. Everybody is many people. I won't say everyone, but many people are intimidated um, or feel uncomfortable or feel uh, incompetent in the kitchen, um, which is fascinating and you know important to me um, because I really believe that cooking is a fundamental health strategy. I don't think it's an optional um, part of our lives. I think it's a life skill. Um, but we have, we have many of us grown up in a culture where either you're an expert and you're a professional or you have somebody else do your cooking. Like there isn't, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, external ideas and influences around what it means to be successful as a cook. And so um, one of the things that I really try and help people understand is that anybody can do it. It's very intuitive and we just need to sort of get away from this idea, this external idea we have about what it means to be a good cook and really tap into what we probably already know, um, which is a combination of you know, the flavors and the senses that are stimulated around eating and, and, you know, the smells and tastes of things that we enjoy. And then some basic elements and skills that, um, while it's true, not everybody has basic knife skills, everybody can learn them. Uh, the thing I would say that above and beyond anything else everyone says is the biggest barrier to cooking is time. And so that's, especially interesting right now because everybody has everybody's at home and while they may be busy managing you know homeschooling and working from home and all of that stuff um, they're at home and so they're in their kitchens or they can be in their kitchens and so I think that that argument is a really interesting one right now but I will tell you that even when we're in the middle of you know crazy busy society, I push back on that argument every single time. And the reason for that is because, um, well, when I was a grad student many years ago in public health, so this was 10 years ago, I did research, a lot of research about cooking and, and barriers to cooking, and time was still the argument back then. And the um, the research I did included the number of hours per day that the average American watched television. And I would say you could insert is on social media now instead of watching television. But do you have any guesses as to what that number was? Ooh, that's a good question. I actually know what my phone tells me it is right now as far as phone usage. And I like to think I don't watch that much television, but I, I would guess an average maybe four to six hours. Yeah, it was four hours a day was the average so, you know, I don't mean to, I, I don't want to shame people and I don't want to point fingers. I include myself in, in all of these numbers. Um, but the point is that time is something we have some control over and cooking is a choice and we have to choose to prioritize it. And if we do, we will find time. Um, just like we find time to prioritize whatever it is that's important to us. And so we need to acknowledge that we have the time. And I realize that there are some people, this is, you know, there, there are some issues related to class. Um, some people who are working and who have 
limited incomes and fewer resources and, and don't have childcare and single parenting, that really changes that equation a lot. And, and I acknowledge that. And I think we, no matter what, we need to meet and start with people where they're at. And so I don't, I don't walk into any conversation making any assumptions about what people's situations are. Um, but certainly a significant number of folks that I teach and that I work with have some control over the, the time that they have. And so I think we need to both recognize that we have some choices and priorities um, and then learn how to be efficient and strategic when we are cooking. And that's, that's where I come in. I can really help people learn how to keep things simple, uh, think about things in terms of formulas. You know, you've got your, your vegetables, you've got your proteins, you've got your grains, and then you've got the condiment or the sauce that makes it all taste good and just sort of insert different things into that equation and you come out with a meal. Yeah. And so as we've been saying, this may be the perfect time to experiment, get in the kitchen, try things. And who knows, maybe it'll take you 45 minutes to an hour the first time. And then the next time, maybe 35 or 30 minutes. And I know here at our house, we've been experimenting with lots of dishes and just getting creative and maybe making a variation of something we made last week, but doing a little different twist on it. So that's been a lot of fun. So right now, I'd like to go back in time for just a minute and talk to you a little bit about, first of all, your website, transformingthetable.com, which is a wonderful name. And it's got some great information on there and describes more about what goes into transforming the table and how you facilitate that and educate on that. And also your cookbook. You have a cookbook called Cooking Up the Good Life, Creative Recipes for the Family Table. And I just recently got a copy of that. And as I was thumbing through it, I read through the foreword and I thoroughly enjoyed learning all I have about you and kind of where you got your start and where that passion comes from. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about that with our audience as well. Uh, okay, well, so I have been working in the food world for probably 25, actually closer to 30 years, started off in, um, in the food industry, co-owned a restaurant and then a catering company for a very long time. But throughout that was really kind of coming to understand that for me, the connection around, the connection to health that food and cooking um, had, and then the connection to just sustainability and issues of equity and justice were the important parts of food for me and um, and that there were a lot of people who were trying in some way to integrate a healthier balance with food in their lives and just needed some help, needed some guidance, some support. And so I really was teaching in all sorts of different contexts. Um, fast forward 15 years, I have a master's in public health nutrition. Uh, I have a master's in education. I'm trying to integrate all of these different tools that I have. And it, for me, the world of public health was fascinating and important. And, you know, certainly right now we can see how important it is. And the world of food and culinary and the industry was also really important. And those two worlds were completely separated. Um, they spoke two different languages. And I found that I was kind of like a translator uh, because I could go between these two worlds and I could help people in the public health world understand a little more about what was actually going on 
on the ground in the world of, of food and sustainable agriculture and vice versa, help people in sustainable agriculture and cooking and food understand a little bit more about health and public health. Um, and not by just academically explaining these things, but in both cases, I really found that experiential learning, getting people in the kitchen, using food as a, a tool um, for understanding each other, understanding systems, communicating, and then ultimately connecting was really important. And, um, and I just started working in this space and ended up, I guess, by default, becoming a consultant because I don't have one very specific thing that I do and, or one very specific um, space that I work in. So I was getting calls from schools to work with school food service and help them learn more about using, you know, whole foods. And I was getting, I was starting to work with a doctor and teaching future clinicians and current practicing clinicians the role of food and healthcare, if you can believe that. Um, and people would ask me, well, where did I, how do I find you? Or I want to connect somebody to you. Where, how do I do that? And I thought, God, you know, I really just need one place where people can find me. So the website was really just a way of telling my story and letting people have a place where they could find me. Um, you know, I don't think that my story is necessarily unique, but it's just, it's the story that I have. And I feel that a lot of people have, have found their experiences with me in classes or in trainings to be really useful. And so that's where, uh, and, and another friend of mine who is a, a marketing person, she came up with the name. We were, I was really trying to figure out what to call this website. And we had, she brainstormed a bunch of names and this one just jumped out at me. It was because I do see the kitchen as a place for transformation. I mean, that really is um, how I see it. Yeah. I love the word transformation. It's so meaningful. And so let's get into your cookbook a little bit. How can we transform our kitchens through some of these amazing recipes that you've got in the book? Where did that come from? Yeah. So I, um, I mentioned that I co-owned a restaurant from 1996 to 2001. Uh, it was a little cafe in South Minneapolis called the Good Life Cafe. And um, I made all the recipes up. Um, you know, it was initially just my business partner and I, and she was, was definitely the front of the house and the bookkeeping side of the business. And I was the kitchen. And so it was me and her. <laughs> and um, we just started making things up, um, putting food together putting a menu together. And as we grew to the point where we needed to hire staff, I was like, oh, I have to write these recipes down. Otherwise, no one's going to know how to make them. And so I just started writing all my recipes down. And that was that's basically where all the recipes came from. And I just kept adding and adding to them. And, and then after the restaurant, as I mentioned, I was doing a lot of teaching. I was, you know, just in multiple places doing teaching and uh, especially doing a lot of teaching with families, um, kids, but also parents and kids or grandparents and kids together. And I realized, and I had small kids at this time, I realized that people did not know how to both how to feed kids, but also how to include kids in the preparation of their food. Or it never occurred to them that they should do that. 
Um, and, you know, and I was that person who was, you know, my, had my four and six year old sitting in the kitchen and they each had a bowl and a spoon and they were mixing up muffins right with me. And there was flour everywhere and it was a mess and half of it never made it into the muffin pan, but who cares? You know, they were completely participating um, in the preparation of the food. And what, what we do know, we knew this then, and we still know, I was also working with programs like Youth Farm and um, other you know, youth garden programs, when kids participate in any part of the preparation of their meal, whether it's the growing or the cooking of the food, they are far more inclined to eat that food. Um, they feel invested in it. They feel proud of it. And so it was so obvious to me that there was this piece around getting kids involved in food preparation from the time they're small. Um, it doesn't mean that they have to remember the recipes or they have to know how to use a chef's knife when they're five. I mean, they could just be using a scissors and cutting cilantro or, um, you know, a, a butter knife and cutting a potato, which takes a long time. But you know, that's part of it. I mean, if you've got a kid and they're focused on a project for 10, 15 minutes in the kitchen, that's huge. Wow, absolutely. And as a kid growing up, I feel extremely grateful that I had that same experience. Our parents got us very involved in not only growing the food, picking the food, preparing it and cooking. So I get what you mean completely. And so is that where some of these recipes came from? Are they family recipes or were they from the restaurant or both? So um, the cookbook was sort of the, the culmination of those two things. It was a lot of recipes from um, just from my cafe days and recipes that I was creating in response to what was available at the time because we were buying from farmers as much as possible. So it's very seasonally organized. And then almost every recipe has tips for how to have kids participate in the preparation. So it's just little things. Sometimes it's just a conversation. Sometimes it's, you know, looking at an ingredient and talking about where it comes from. And sometimes it's actually how they can help, you know, pull the leaves off the kale. So that's wow. where it came from. And um, I had been teaching some classes at the Arboretum with a woman who worked for the university in continuing education and was a writer. And she, she asked if I wanted help putting a cookbook together. And I said, yes, I do. I don't know anything about how to do that. Um, and so she was my kind of my co, my co creator. Um, I did all the recipes and wrote all the introductions to the recipes and she just helped me keep it organized and the university of minnesota press published it so well i'm excited because i just got my copy of it a few days ago and already starting to find some great recipes that i want to experiment with and my wife is excited about it as well so for the listeners if they want to order a copy what's the best way for them to get one of your books right now uh so you can find it on amazon um and then i also always have copies if people want to buy directly from me there is a link on my website but i'm i'm local in minnesota and i'm i'm happy to deliver cookbooks in fact i sent my daughter out to deliver one yesterday um, it's definitely something that could be useful now because i know a lot of folks are home with their kids and probably maybe stressed about getting dinner out and one thing i would say is get your kids involved um and i i do want to say that i i don't i think people hear me talk or they look at my book and they think oh you must have 
amazing kids who cook every day and, you know, eat only good food. And I want to be really clear that um, I don't have that fantasy life that people might think. My kids are normal teenagers. When they could go out, <laughs> they liked to go out and buy crappy food. But um, when they're home, we only have really great choices around. And so that's what's available. And, and sometimes they help prepare food and sometimes they don't. But they have a really good foundation of, of good, healthy food. And I think that's as much as we can do as parents is just create that environment for them. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about that. And I feel that way as well about, you know, trying to do the best we can the majority of the time, but also giving ourselves permission to maybe stray a little bit once in a while. If you're in a social setting and you want to try something and maybe it's not the best or healthiest food, that's okay. You know, as long as we're conscious and you used the word intentional earlier about that, I think that's a key too, is being conscious and intentional about the choices that we're making and knowing why we're doing it. Absolutely. And I, I really actually feel strongly about that. And I, I in every setting, you know, when, I, when we're teaching healthcare practitioners, it's really important for them, but also for their potential patients. Um, to get that message that there's no such thing as purity, nor is that really the goal. Um, it's all about balance. And I, I always say being intentional in my mind is the most important thing. Uh, I can never tell you exactly what to choose, but I can give you as much information as possible so that whatever choice you make, it's made from a place of information and that you're making it on purpose. And sometimes that intentional choice is cookies and ice cream. Um, that's certainly true for me. And what I always tell people is eat with intention, enjoy every bit and move on. Because the other thing that we really don't want to do is make a choice, not enjoy it, and then beat ourselves up about it. So whatever choice we make, it's the choice we make. Hopefully it's made on purpose. Hopefully we can enjoy that and then we move on. Well, and as you said, the more we know, the better choices we can make. And then again, talking about reducing or eliminating food waste or minimizing food waste, if we're conscious and intentional about that, about what we eat and when we eat it and why we're eating it, less likely that we're going to just take a bite and say, oh, that's awful. I'm going to throw that away. So. Right. And, and if we are intentional even before we go shopping, then we're less likely to run into that situation where we have stuff we don't want to eat, right? Where we're throwing stuff away because, oh, why did I buy this? So intentionality at every step, I think, is really important, including, you know, the choices we're making about where we buy our food and, and who's producing our food and, and all of that, because that, you know, the whole supply chain is a part of that. Yeah, it definitely is. And that's the reminder for us over and over again is to be more conscious of that. So let's move into upcycling for just a minute, because you and I almost had an opportunity to meet about a month or so ago. And we was at an event and you had prepared some dishes for that particular event. It was an upcycling food event and you weren't able to be there in person for one reason or another. But I had the opportunity to try some of these things you made and they were very unique and very tasty. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what went into that and how it kind of falls into the realm of upcycling. Yeah, so it was an event that was highlighting food entrepreneurship and small food businesses and um, including this sort of small but new uh, and growing movement of upcycled food. And so your wife is part of Net Zero, which is doing this uh, spent grain 
baking, which I think is really wonderful. And so they prepared some pretzels out of spent rye. So um, my assignment was to create some food that was some dishes for this buffet spread, this happy hour that was prepared from food that would otherwise have gone to waste. And um, that was a really fun challenge for me and also surprisingly not that hard to find. And so I, you know, I, I made some calls. It was not hard. People had boxes of produce, um, some some other ingredients and I just took what I have. It was kind of like one of those chef challenges, you know, you look at what you have and then you come up with a menu and um, I put the word out. So I had lots of friends come in and help, but I was basically the one who did the planning. And so I think I made like a, a pesto with carrot tops and, and then I roasted some squash and made croquettes out of those. So little, kind of veggie squash balls. I made some polenta with um, some kind of roasted vegetable. Somebody had given me some oldish blue cheese and I turned that into a topping. Um, so it was surprisingly not that difficult to uh, put together quite a lot of food. I think I fed about a hundred people um, in just a few days of collecting ingredients. And what that tells me is there's a lot more out there that could be repurposed if we had really good plans for how to do that. Yeah, I love it. That's, that's such a great example of what we talk about with too good to waste. And what we mean by that, which is, you know, a lot of the things you use to prepare this uh, meal for everybody were things that might have otherwise normally been thrown out. So I appreciate that you repurposed them or rescued them or found a higher value in that, which actually then provided these great dishes for all of us to try, which I tried them and I loved them. And the feedback I saw from other people trying them was absolutely wonderful. So I'm sorry you weren't there in person to see that, but it was a great, great evening. So thanks for participating in that. So I wanted to shift the conversation for just a minute to education and some of the courses that you teach. I was looking at your website and you've got some of them listed on there and they're being taught through the University of Minnesota. But are there other ways that I may be able to participate in a class like that? Are you doing anything online? Yes. Um, that's one thing that this um, sheltering in place has forced me to do is to figure out how to get this stuff out to people. Um, and so I'm hoping to create a series of videos that you can find through my website, which is transformingthetable.com. Um, and then I'm also looking into possibly offering a bigger public facing class. I actually just had a conversation with the Center for Spirituality and Healing, where I teach my student class about the possibility of, of offering a public facing version of it. So um, keep your eyes out for that. I hopefully will be able to share that on my website, whether it's through my website or through the center. Um, but yeah, I'm really, I really miss connecting with the public and with folks who are really interested. And so this is hopefully a, a way of doing that. Wonderful. Well, we will put some information up in the show notes uh, to your website and then encourage people to go back there and look for any new announcements on videos or classes that may be available to anybody who wants to learn more from you. And I guess one last question that I would ask you is if there is just one thing that the listeners would take away from today's interview of all the stuff we've talked about, what do you feel would be kind of one of the most important little nuggets that they can take and just incorporate into their daily lives from what 
we've shared today? Uh, so I would say take a deep breath, go easy on yourself, and keep it simple. Ah, yes, indeed. I love it. Great words of wisdom. Thank you so much for sharing those. I appreciate it. What a great way to wrap this up. And before we go, I just want to remind everybody that it's transformingthetable.com. That's your website. And what about social media? Are you also on uh, any other platforms? I am on Instagram. It's Jenny Broccoli 51 And I'm on Facebook too. Jenny Breen. Wonderful. Now we have several ways to get a hold of you and to follow what you're doing. And we'll make sure we have those links in the show notes for episode number four with Jenny Breen, Transforming the Table. And we will also put an email link if you want to email Jenny and get a book here locally. Who knows? Maybe one of her daughters or she or maybe even her husband will ride a bike over and drop off the book for you. So thank you again, Jenny. I really appreciate you being our special Earth Day celebration guest on the Too Good to Waste podcast series. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. uh, It was great. And I, I had a great time. I'm looking forward to hearing more of these podcasts. Well, that's going to do it for episode number four, our special Earth Day episode with Jenny Breen. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you got some ideas and some insights and some inspiration. I know I did. I'm excited to get this cookbook open and get some of these recipes out and try them and encourage you to maybe try them as well. So you can head over to the show notes page on TooGoodToWastePodcast.com and we'll have some links and that's where you can also order the book if you'd like to. You can help us out by liking us wherever you listen to your podcast. Five stars would be absolutely amazing. We would greatly appreciate that. And also sharing it with anybody you think might be interested in this topic. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. Give us a shout. You'll find us at too good to waste underscore podcast. Special thanks go out to Sue Marshall, a.k.a. my wife, for helping with the creative development on this podcast series, and to our production assistant, Amy Gilbert, who helps with writing, researching, and is our resident upcycled food baker. And of course, to our sponsors, Net Zero. You can find them at netzero.us and the Upcycled Food Association at upcycledfood.org. Too good to waste, absolutely.